Welcome to Week in Review, where we recap issues and events pertinent to Central Illinois. I'm WNBD News Director Cooper Banks. State police in Illinois touting progress on the search and seizure of illegal guns. On Friday morning, ISP Director Brendan Kelly was joined by Cook County Sheriff's Department Chief of Police Leo Schmitz in making the announcement. Take a listen. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Illinois and the nation continue to confront how we as a society can prevent gun violence. And there's no one answer or one action that any singular entity can take that will end this violence. But many actors working together can make a difference while respecting individual rights. One tool the Illinois State Police uses to protect the public safety is simple, straight-on firearms enforcement. After legally obtaining a firearms owner identification card, circumstances may change and a person may become prohibited from possessing a firearm. This can include being newly convicted of a felony or making specific serious threats that cause a public safety risk. Any number of state or federal firearms prohibitors the Illinois State Police identifies thousands of individuals every year who are prohibited from possessing a firearm and we revoke their firearms owner identification card. When that happens, a person loses their firearms rights under federal or state law, local law enforcement is notified and the individual is required to transfer their firearms to law enforcement or to someone who can legally possess them. Some of these individuals may be more dangerous than others. One example is a clear and present danger report ISP received from Batavia Police Department in mid-June. Within three days, ISP reviewed the report and found enough evidence to revoke the Ford card of the subject in a clear and present danger report. Law enforcement executed a search warrant and found a pistol, two rifles, more than a thousand rounds of live ammunition, a ballistic vest, explosives, an incendiary device, and bomb-making materials in the individual's home. Ensuring compliance with firearms laws is an important tool that is needed to protect communities. Since the Henry Pratt shooting, ISP has conducted more than 750 firearms enforcement details from May 2019 to May 2022. Since the shootings in Uvalde and Buffalo, from mid-June through the end of July, ISP conducted an intense enforcement blitz around the state focusing on those individuals possess the greatest threat to themselves, who pose the greatest threat to themselves or to others. As a result of 201 details, the Illinois State Police conducted more than 1,700 compliance checks statewide just in that short time, resulting in 1,000 people, over 1,000 people, including today, being brought into compliance. In Northern Illinois alone, in Illinois State Police Zones 1, 2, and 3, ISP completed 63 enforcement details consisting of 421 compliance checks and brought 223 people into compliance with the law in just a month and a half. Compliance checks are not confiscating guns, but about ensuring individuals who have lost their firearm rights transfer their firearms to law enforcement or someone who is legally able to possess them. While law enforcement may need to secure the weapons if the person does not have anyone to whom they can legally turn over their firearms, ISP prefers to facilitate an appropriate transfer. But ensuring those who possess a significant threat, who pose a significant threat to themselves or others, do not have access to firearms is not something law enforcement can do on its own. In addition to law enforcement, qualified medical professionals, school administrators, and uh, can also submit a clear and present danger report when they identify someone physically or verbally exhibiting uh, that type of physically or verbally threatening behavior. 
Family members or individuals who live with someone who is threatening violence can contact law enforcement for a clear and present danger report or seek a firearms restraining order from a judge. There's often people who interact with a person on a daily basis that notice threatening behavior. If you see something, say something. The Illinois State Police is charged with pursuing justice and protecting public safety along with our outstanding federal and local partners, and we will do everything in our power to prevent mass shootings and gun violence of any kind. ISP is offering grants to local law enforcement to help with firearms enforcement in their communities for a total of about $2 million in funding. Currently, 33 departments across Illinois have applied for that funding. The Illinois State Police will continue to use every resource at our disposal to keep firearms out of the hands of those individuals who pose a significant risk to themselves or others while respecting individual rights. And with that, I'm, I'm very uh, always honored to stand um, uh, past, present, and future um, with our partners at, at the Cook County Sheriff's Department, and I'm always particularly proud to stand with uh, my friend, uh, Leo Schmitz, um, uh, my predecessor, as well as the, the great chief of the Cook County Police Department. With that, Leo, it's all yours, sir. Yeah, thank you, Brendan. I like Brendan, too, so I hang out with him. So, um, first of all, I'd like to say uh, thank you for being here and good morning. Uh, on behalf of Sheriff Tom Dart, I'd like to say that uh, he had the foresight about 10 years ago to put together teams uh, to combat this uh, problem, uh, revoking uh, FOIDs and uh, getting the guns out of people that are clear and present danger and could cause uh, problems. We're specifically going after people who have been revoked uh, for the many reasons. It could be uh, felony convictions, among other things, clear and present dangers. And uh, the sheriff had the foresight to look at that years back. And in Cook County, uh, we like to get out in front of those things. And so we have a team every day out there and um, weekly meetings on anybody that could fit in these brackets. And what I'm here to do is support uh, the Illinois State Police and the director, uh, Brendan Kelly, on what they're doing with that. He's got uh, a lot of revocations and things going on, which is gonna help us to help combat what we just went through in other areas uh, where people may have guns that shouldn't have them and they can commit crimes. So with that being said, uh, Glad to be here, and I'm always in support of anybody in law enforcement that's trying to do the right thing, like the Illinois State Police are. Any questions? Sure. Yeah. Um, Director Kelly, can you tell me a little bit about what happened in Rules Committee yesterday and any new rules that sure. may be in place in terms of in, in determining yeah. clear and present day? So um, I think uh, what uh, Kurt of JCAR was a, uh, they were discussing um, rules, emergency rules we filed. Uh, back in July as a result of looking at the process when it comes to clear and present dangers and, and some language that had developed over the years and the decades in which clear and present dangers had been placed which frankly made the the analysis a little more complicated than it needs to be and it was a little bit too constraining a little bit limiting uh, and in addition to just the, the the legal parameters the records retention requirements in terms of how long we could keep some some of these reports were more complicated and more restraining than we felt that they needed to be under, under the circumstances. So 
the the generally speaking, big picture in this country, um, if you want to have a firearm, you have a right to do so under the Second Amendment, unless the government, unless the state can prove and show that there is a prohibitor, there's some reason you are prohibited from doing so. And there's many, many prohibitors uh, that can uh, prevent someone from having a firearm, many different uh, factors that, that are considered. One of those in this state going back uh, several years, going back almost three decades, is something called a clear and present danger uh, report that can prohibit someone from having a firearm. Now, that has evolved again over the years uh, to include school administrators' ability to report, law enforcement's ability to report, medical professionals' ability to report if someone uh, poses a clear and present danger for purposes of a FOID card. Um, and that's when that process comes up to the Illinois State Police to report that and see if does someone have a FOID card, are they applying for a FOID card, and, and can we take some action to prevent them from having so based on this clear and present danger. Now, back in, I think, 2013, 2014, some administrative rules were filed, and that is how state agencies interpret the laws and try to give some guidance to the people that are doing the actual analysis, our firearms eligibility analysts, our police officers who are getting that information and making decisions if there's a clear and present danger. And those rules uh, that were put in place uh, go going back to that time frame limited the, uh, the sort of the definition of a clear and present danger to something that has to be eminent or impending or just, you know, right now. Um, uh, not yesterday, not last week, not two years ago, not four years ago, but, but eminent. And the statutory language didn't really require that. The statutory language really required something that showed physical uh, threats, verbal threats, that's assaultive, suicidal, homicidal, et cetera. Um, and what we wanted to make sure we were doing is that we could just rely on the statute, not the limiting uh, uh, administrative rule. So one of, the, one of the complicating issues and the reason we asked for the emergency rule is that it is a factor at, at that time in determining whether or not someone is a clear and present danger, if it's eminent or impending uh, for purposes of a FOID card. It's hard to show for that individual officer that's making that decision or, the, or that analyst who's making the decision if someone doesn't even have a FOID card, they haven't even applied for a FOID card, what is the eminent danger at that moment for their access to it? So and that, that's why um, uh, the analysis and decision-making process was also uh, as complicated. But even, even without that factor, let's say in a hypothetical you know, situation that uh, the information that came in uh, from, from uh, the local police department um, was the information that I, I believe has been shared publicly on numerous occasions. Uh, it, it was um, an individual told another individual who told law enforcement about some dangerous behavior invo involving that subject. Law enforcement uh, then appropriately went and investigated. They were not able to corroborate that. In fact, they, they found information that was contradictory to that. And the issue of the, the knives, uh, you know, we had the, the individual's father that claimed, well, these are mine. Um, based on all that, it, it's still possible, even with the rule change, that we would have had the same outcome, that there wouldn't have been a sufficient amount of information. But what we're hoping is that by changing the rules, we want to be able to connect more dots over a longer period. Because there was other information, um, potentially months before that, that was not part of that clear and present danger report, uh, something about uh, maybe getting mental health treatment for, and, and there's a question, was, it, was that ever 
was that ever reported? Mental health uh, professionals, they can report that. But we have to, uh, you know, um, assume that they're exercising good judgment as well. And if they, they didn't think it met the threshold for something that's reporting, then they reach that similar conclusion as well. One of the things I think is so frustrating um, is that if you look at all the clear and present danger reports, if you look at all the revocations that we do, the thousands of individuals that apply for a FOID card or have a FOID card, uh, we find a prohibitor in their record or there's a clear and present danger reported, it's something like 1.2% that ultimately there's some report that may get a FOID card later. Because quite often what we have is people who do commit a criminal act and then that's a basis for a revocation. Or there's an order of protection filed. Or there's a firearms restraining order filed. Or they have some other uh, uh, mental health thing in their background that results in being a prohibitor. It's very rare, the circumstances that we see here in, in this particular example, for that not to have been uh, present. And again, three, four years later, after that initial report, multiple background checks done in the interim that still didn't, did, did not find anything. So um, again, that may be, you know, uh, 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 unsatisfactory to to us as human beings to to say you know you know what else could we have done, but we have to look at the facts. Uh, we have to discuss the facts as they are, not as you know we we would wish them to be, and figure out you know what what else can we do um, in terms of changes to the law, uh, in terms of changes to the rule, and in terms of invest in, in additional investigative enforcement. I think that's the point of what we're here today. It is one thing to find somebody who has a prohibitor. It's another thing to revoke them. And then it's entirely other thing to go out there and make sure the firearms are not in their hands and to make sure those firearms are properly disposed of. We are revoking and denying Ford applications. We are revoking thousands of those. But the real effort, the real sort of final frontier of this enforcement is making sure that we are we're going out there, finding the firearms and making sure they're properly disposed of. And there is still a huge uh, number of individuals who have been revoked who are not complying with the law. And that's why we, we've taken these steps uh, post-Henry uh, Pratt. There were no enforcement details like this. And that's why we've done hundreds of them and put hundreds of people into compliance. And that's why we built this out this summer, these special details. And that's why it's very important, the work that's being done by the Cook County Sheriff's Department. They are doing those details. And now we have a $2 million uh, overall grant uh, option for local law enforcement so they can do that as well. It is, it is a statewide effort. Uh, it is a tool that I think some local law enforcement have not been comfortable with. I think they were had some concerns about uh, the confrontational aspect of this and taking someone's firearms. But I will tell you what we've, we have done has been able to develop a pretty good um, working model, how you can do this safely, how you can engage with someone who is uh, the subject of, of one of these uh, revocations and safely make sure those firearms are disposed of. Um, we're doing it every day across the state. And I think that's something that we hope our local law enforcement partners will see and that we will work with them and they will get more comfortable doing it. Cook County has been doing it for years. Um, they, they are on it. Um, but we're hoping our other local law enforcement partners will help us engage in this because there is still a, a, a large number of people who are refusing to comply. In terms of that $2 million grant, yeah. you mentioned I think 33 departments have applied for yes. that. Yeah. Are there any in sort of like the Chicago area that, yes. you, could, that yeah. you could just off the top of your head kind of? Uh, not that my head, no. But <laughs> Cook County, 
Cook County. County yep, yep, yep. Um, but I, we can get you that. We can no. get you that list. It is a, a smattering uh, all over the place. Small departments, big departments, uh, sheriff's departments as well. So uh, we can make sure we share. We will in the weeks ahead be announcing those grant awards. So. And uh, I guess finally, in terms of uh, just just brief topic, yeah. um, is there any change uh, in this emergency rule? Uh, for the guidelines for that person who is reviewing the clear and present danger report in terms of their determination. I know preponderance of evidence, right, which is over 50% yeah. uh, likelihood, I guess. Is there any change to that that would have maybe triggered something? So, so that is set by statute. Okay. Um, the, the, the ultimate uh, review uh, by a court to decide if, if the Illinois State Police had enough evidence one way or the other to do to do what they did that that level of evidence that's what ultimately would have to go before a court and 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 also that court can consider not just what the officer was looking at they can consider new information they can consider all these things and override that decision so that's why the burden has uh, traditionally been pretty high on the ISP to make sure uh, that um, we have enough evidence to be able to revoke someone's uh, rights under the law. Um, but that has not changed. Uh, but we would certainly welcome the opportunity to discuss with legislators if that needs to be appropriately refined. If there are incremental steps, um, we have the Firearms Restraining Order Commission, and I think we have some pretty good lessons that we're learning from that, that the firearms restraining order and the clear and present danger process probably need to be integrated. Um, we have many of these great enforcement things in the state of Illinois that have evolved over decades, but in a very ad hoc and sometimes not a very cohesive way. So we need a, 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 a more um, uh, thought out and integrated spectrum uh, uh, from the least dangerous thing to the most dangerous thing when it comes to our ability to act on, on, on someone's uh, uh, firearms uh, rights. So that I think it will, be, it will be forthcoming. What has changed for the analyst or the officer that's making that decision is it doesn't have to be eminent anymore. It doesn't have to be impending anymore. They can look at a long historical uh, perspective of information that they have. Um, whether or not someone has a, a FOID right now or a, a FOID application, um, that's not as critical anymore because that, again, it doesn't have to be impending or eminent. You can look at a long history of things. So a report can come in. Uh, they can say this is problematic. This is, this is dangerous. This meets this criteria. It's not eminent. It's not impending. But that doesn't matter anymore. We can hold on to this record in the event someone applies for a FOID, in the event someone um, in, the, in the future uh, may have some conduct that we need to connect together to be able to prevent them from having a firearm. So, yes, it, it, we asked for the rule change for that very reason. Uh, to make the decision uh, a little bit easier for for our officers that are that are doing that reviewing, uh, to be able to act. It seems to me, at least for when you're looking at it for that kind of longitudinal way, you're looking at more information. It allows that person who's making the determination on whether or not to allow a FOID card. It allows them to see whether there's a pattern yes. of violence or, yes. or or you know statements like that yes. over time, and that can. I, I, if I'm understanding yeah. correctly, that is what can be helpful in determining. That, that, that will be helpful. It, it, is, it is difficult to show a pattern if at one particular date and time someone does uh, something, has some conduct uh, that is assaultive, that is homicidal, suicidal, uh, verbal, or, or, or physical, uh, and there's a determination, um, an assessment made that, that 
that that is not enough even at that point given the totality of the circumstances and that record um, uh, is not retained to then see similar you know behavior because sometimes that that first conduct may not be enough but if you see something similar months down the road years down the road encounters with law enforcement more mental health issues um, more threats uh, being made that you can substantiate um, that painting that whole picture is very helpful to law enforcement. It's very helpful to the, the analyst who's making that decision. And that's what gives us more evidence to be able to withstand that on, a, on an appeal and say, yes, we, we did the right thing here. We didn't overstep our bounds. We are, we are doing what's necessary to protect public safety. But we got to have that info. And having a broad perspective of that information is what's going to make, make it easier for officers to make that decision to be able to uh, act in terms of protecting public safety. Folks from right here at home, helping in disaster areas across the Midwest. And I had the chance to speak with one of the folks who knows them, and they still need more volunteers. Here's my conversation with Brian Williamson of the American Red Cross of Central Illinois, focused on the flooding disasters to our south. Word on the street has it that there are some folks from Central Illinois who have taken time out of their lives to uh, get with the Red Cross and help out victims who have been so devastated to our south and our east. Please fill us in on, on what folks are doing here. Sure. So uh, volunteers uh, from the Illinois region have joined the uh, national response for the Red Cross uh, in Kentucky after the flooding that happened there. And uh, approximately 430 or so uh, trained Red Cross disaster workers from across uh, the U.S. Are, are on the ground actually helping provide things like safe place to stay, food to eat, uh, critical relief supplies, emotional support for those affected by the tragedy, and uh, approximately half dozen or so uh, from the Illinois region, as you mentioned. And, you know, along with that, uh, things like helping replace uh, eyeglasses, prescription medications, uh, critical medical equipment that may have been left behind by folks who, who rushed to get to safety. So the volunteers are there uh, looking to help out in any way they can. Have you been able to keep in touch with them down you yourself have you been able to talk with them in recent days so how it works is our, our volunteers yeah they, they go down there and then on average um it's about a about a two-week uh, period that the uh, the volunteering goes for and so um with that you know again uh, things like helping out with shelters uh, and getting the uh, you know the food for whatnot and everybody and um really you know, they're, they're very busy. <laughs> the, uh, the days are, are full there. And so um, the team is down working hard to make sure to, you know, just to provide um, whatever help they can uh, after, obviously, such a very difficult event. I was going to probe about what sort of anecdotal information that you've received, perhaps, from team members on the ground about just the scale of the devastation that they are seeing down there. Uh, have you any any idea about that that you might be able to share with our listeners here well yeah i mean uh, just you know certainly an incredibly challenging situation there um the, the flooding is very significant and that is something of course that you know has been seen through uh, visuals shared in the media um, from reports on the ground uh this is this is just deadly flooding and again just one more you know example here of for example some of these climate-related disasters that we're seeing more often. And so really, uh, our volunteers, the folks on the ground there, they're just seeing firsthand uh, just how the communities are, are suffering at this point here. And, and the volunteers really are just there to, to try to offer that comfort uh, and those uh, assistances for immediate needs. 
You know, I think it's worth asking at this point now that we have this response for, uh, you know, a fairly small number, but a number of Central Illinois volunteers. How busy are times as a Red Cross volunteer or manager these days? Or how much are you guys responding to about now? Sure. So uh, the Red Cross responds to disasters, of course, 365 days a year. And so whether that is flooding, whether it's after a hurricane, uh, truthfully, home fires are our mm-hmm. most commonly responded to disaster. That is, by and large, the uh, the number one disaster that Red Cross volunteers do respond to. Uh, approximately 60,000 or so disasters every year across the U.S. Mm-hmm. that we do respond to. And so volunteers uh, go to all of those events um, strongly about. And so, yeah, from there you're trained and then head out. So if there is any interest to a volunteer for, for future disasters, unfortunately we know that, that they unfortunately do come. So I uh, would love to have you on board as a Red Cross volunteer. I'll I'll keep kind of following that line of thought and ask about what you would say about what's it take? What what do you what sort of stuff do you want to have if you want to be a Red Cross volunteer? Well, I tell you what, we we love our volunteers. For starters, the it's like ninety percent there. Okay, ninety percent of the Red Cross workforce all made up of volunteers there, and so volunteers really uh, make the Red Cross run and so we have so many dedicated individuals people that just want to give their time I mean, these are people that are just giving their time to help others and of course there's any number of different roles i mentioned the disaster relief roles there our disaster team is again at the ready all year round uh, we have volunteers on the biomedical side uh, the individuals who you see at a blood drive there uh, greeting you at the door Uh, Folks actually are responsible for transporting blood between uh, blood collection sites and hospitals. We have those uh, transportation specialists on that end. Mm -hmm. There are any number of volunteer roles here. And and really the the common thread is people who want to help other people. And so it's uh, really neat to see our volunteers in action. Of course, the common thread that runs through the entire effort is generosity, whether that's a volunteer giving time or Perhaps someone who can't give the time, giving in other ways. I know you guys are always um, hoping that you, if folks will be receptive to that information. Certainly in the case with the Kentucky disaster, with the ongoing needs of the Red Cross to respond to, things like fires, which you do so commonly. Tell us more about, for those folks who want to help, but maybe who can't give the time, how they can help too. Sure. Uh, a great way to help after a disaster, uh, for example, the flood, fires, whatever it might be, uh, is making a gift to Red Cross disaster relief. And essentially what you're doing there, you're committing to helping people who are in need. Of course, every donation certainly matters. Lots of ways you can do that. You can visit redcross.org. You can call 800-RED-CROSS. You can text the word Red Cross to 90999. Uh, to make, uh, for example, a $10 donation there. And again, the financial donation is really the the quickest, the best way to support people who are impacted by disasters. That that donation is helping provide things, uh, as mentioned earlier there, shelter, meals, relief supplies, comfort, uh, other assistance from there. So we certainly appreciate that. You know, I was going to mention one other thing that I also find is interesting, and it's just a, hey, since I have you on the phone here, Why don't I ask you to articulate some of what we hear sometimes from leaders at the Red Cross, specifically after big disasters 
outside of our area. There are people who are motivated and inspired who want to pick themselves up and go down and help volunteer on the spot at the disaster scene. We hear the Red Cross often at times will discourage that. Why? So here's um, how it works. When you do sign up there as a volunteer, and as mentioned earlier, there is a training that's involved, of course, to uh, to be uh, a disaster volunteer, for example, or a biomedical volunteer or things along those lines. And so really, you know, in that absolute first moment there after disaster, uh, as I mentioned there previously, that the best way to support people who've been impacted by those disasters, uh, that financial donation to Red Cross Disaster Relief. But that said, uh, we do see that a lot of people are inspired to volunteer. And so the suggestion there is to go ahead and, and get signed up as a Red Cross volunteer, uh, redcross.org slash volunteer. And then from there, we'll get you trained. Uh, and then for whatever may come up in the future, uh, you'll be on board and uh, able to serve from there. And we certainly appreciate it. Got to be trained up right. All right, Brian, uh, if there's anything that I mentioned, anything I didn't ask about that you would like to address, I was going to give you the floor. Oh, just appreciate the uh, the interest in what our volunteers do. Again, couldn't be more grateful for the volunteers of the Red Cross, and thank you to everyone who uh, does support in that way, financially or whatever way it might be. Appreciate it. Thank you, Brian, for the time and for what you guys do, as always. Pleasure. Thanks, uh, thanks again for the interest. While manufacturing remains a bedrock of the Illinois economy, challenges certainly remain, especially in the labor force. Mark Denzler, president of the Illinois Manufacturers Association, shared more on WNBD's The Greg and Dan Show this week. Mark Denzler is the president and CEO of the Illinois Manufacturing uh, Manufacturers Association. Julia gave me her mouth there for a second. I can't get the I words know. out right. I can't get the words out right. Hey, Mark, good morning to you, buddy. How you doing? Hey, good morning, gentlemen. Thanks for having me on. It's morning. always good to talk to you, sir. Yesterday or a couple of days ago, you were in the area. We're out with our friends at uh, Morton Industries. The highlight is that um, uh, that manufacturing sometimes manufacturing can can be not forgotten, but you know we've gone uh, uh, through some changes over the last couple of decades, and people are like, ah, oh, well, what's what's manufacturing anymore? When the fact of the matter is, it's still the bread and butter of our economy. You're absolutely right. I mean, manufacturing is the greatest driver of economic prosperity and wealth in this country. And, and, and you're exactly right. I don't think enough people have an appreciation for what the men and women in manufacturing do every day. And it's the reason the, the Manufacturing Matters Tour is going around the state. You're right. We were with our friends Chris and Steve and Choi at Morton Industries this week uh, to talk about the importance of manufacturing in the greater Peoria area. And, uh, you know, where, where they employ and support 40,000 jobs and tens of billions of dollars in economic output. When you look and break down the various sectors, obviously there's the ag side of manufacturing, the construction side of manufacturing, the oncoming biotech side of manufacturing, and the bioscience and environmental side. So there's uh, sectors that have been traditional and sectors that are emerging. You know, you're, you're exactly right. The single largest share of Illinois' manufacturing economy is in the food space, which, as you note, is directly tied to the agricultural sector, which Illinois is a leader nationally as well. But we're a diverse state, and so whether it's heavy equipment, which you, you have in your backyard, food, pharmaceuticals, chemical, electronics, steel, uh, Illinois has a diverse manufacturing sector, and 
you know, across the state, uh, 662,000 people work in manufacturing, uh, annual economic output of $600 billion, which makes it the single largest share of our economy, 14%. And again, most people don't realize it because they drive past manufacturers that are oftentimes in gray, nondescript buildings and industrial parks, and they don't know the cool things that are being produced in those factories today. I got an idea for you, Mark. We should have a website called What Goes On In There? What what goes on in there dot com because you drive you do you drive by places even me I've been around this area most of my life you drive by a place that's like what's going what do well, they do in there like yeah. you, you go by and it's been around for a long time Parsons Manufacturing but and you drive by they go but what goes on yeah there? I kind of know about Parsons I kind yeah, of, yeah yeah, yeah. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> hey uh, Mark let me ask you this uh, this is a tough question for you I got two tough ones for you one is what's the biggest challenge right now what's the biggest challenge for manufacturing. Well, there's a lot of challenges, but I would tell you workforce before the pandemic and after still remains probably the largest challenge. Uh, before the pandemic started with 437,000 open manufacturing jobs nationally, today we're at 850,000 open manufacturing jobs. And wow. so, wow. you know, the folks at Morton Industry have their own training academy. Uh, will show up for work. You know, Morton will train them up, as will Caterpillar and and other manufacturers, but it's really finding people, and whether they're young men and women coming out of school or returning veterans or dislocated workers, and I think part of that, it's a great question, is the perception. Too many people envision manufacturing as dark, dirty, and dangerous, maybe what you thought about 30, 40 years ago, belching smokestacks and cuts, but today's manufacturing is, you know, there's virtual reality and 5G, sure. and it's automated, and it's clean, and so, so to get people to address that workforce jobs, we really have to change the perception of manufacturing. And uh, I really, and this is something that I've been pushing and talking about for a long time, when you want a skilled workforce, you need to start going into high schools where kids are sophomores and juniors and start training them then, transition them to, like, ICC has a great program, Illinois Central College. And so the manufacturing dips in from high school into junior college and says, look, here's opportunities. Follow these courses, and once you're in it, we'll connect with you and pull you through and help you train you on the other side. A lot of kids starting their sophomore, junior year can take that train right into manufacturing. Yeah, I, I could I could hire you to be our press person. Um, you're exactly right. And at the uh, press event we had this week, we had Dana King from Illinois Central College because they played such a critical role. And we've lost a generation of workers because for the last couple of decades, whether it's parents or teachers or counselors, but really school districts have gone away from career and tech education. And so the students don't have the opportunity to explore those careers. Now, I'm really proud that the IMA led an effort this year to pass legislation. It's going to require high schools, again, starting in 2025, to offer career and tech ed in every high school. So those young individuals at least have the opportunity to learn about it. We passed a dual credit program a couple years ago, and I know Morton Industries was telling the story. They got high school students that go to school during the day and come and work in the afternoon. So when they graduate, they step right into a job. And again, the average manufacturing job pays almost $80,000 a year in wages and benefits. So these are great middle-class jobs in every community across the state. We're talking with Mark Danzler, President and CEO of the Illinois Manufacturers Association. All right, here's a complicated one that you, we could talk about for an hour. 
So I grew up I grew up in Pekin, Illinois, down the road from uh, this radio station, and I, I uh, it's a story I'll tell you some other day, but. My my dad was part of the beginning of what is now Morton Industries with a man that he knew named Mr. Rinkenberger. And um, in that era of the 60s and 70s, the manufacturing employee, whether they were at Morton Welding at that time or they were at Caterpillar or Keystone Steel and Wire, they made a really great living, a really great living, affording nice homes and boats and vacations and sending kids to college right over the, part of that credit to that nice living mark has to be given to a relationship that manufacturing had with labor unions and that relationship has fallen apart to almost nothing now and i know that it's a it's a very nerve-wracking conversation but from the ima standpoint where where is the relationship between manufacturing and labor unions? You know, it's a great question. We have a uh, I have a good relationship with the AFL-CIO, and a lot of manufacturers are unionized. And, and kind of to your point, we've lost three hundred thousand manufacturing jobs since since the year two thousand. Um, you know, we still employ six hundred sixty thousand. But as I tell our friends in organized labor, when you lose manufacturers, Illinois, you're losing union jobs. And, you know, we'll work with them on, on many cases, particularly when we see the environmental community, for example, trying to shut down factories or make it much more difficult to operate. And there are certainly issues where, where we disagree. But uh, One last question. When you talk about the workforce, if you're a 35 or 40-year-old in a job and you're like, you know what, I want to explore what's going on in manufacturing and maybe go take classes at ICC, uh, is, are those people in that age range viable to jump right into manufacturing? Oh, a- absolutely. Manufacturers are looking for anybody. And, and again, whether you're an ex-offender um, who's looking to enter the workforce, or a young student, a returning veteran, a dislocated worker, that 35 or 40-year-old, and when you look at manufacturing, it's not just production floor or an engineer. It could be accounting. It could be marketing. There are so many different jobs. And in the study we released, you look at the top 20 occupations, industrial engineers and mechatronics, they're expected to grow 20% in the next six years. So manufacturing jobs are growing, and it's very easy to get upskilled or retrained. might be a six-month certificate, maybe a year. But oftentimes, those employers will pay for your training or provide it for you. Uh, you know, if you can show up for work and get there on time and you have a good work ethic, You'll, you'll find work in a manufacturing facility, and, and they will help train you for those jobs. That does it for this edition of Week in Review. Join us at this time next week on this Midwest 360 station for another recap of some of the biggest issues and events in central Illinois. I'm Cooper Banks, WNBD News.